Let's start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather here today as your people. And thank you that as you promised to speak uh, through Samuel to your people back in the Old Testament, so you promised to speak through your word today for us. I pray, Lord, that you would do that and that you would give us hearts and minds that are able to receive your word and put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little while ago, there was a popular British TV show called How to Start Your Own Country. It was a bit of a weird program. Uh, A guy called Danny Wallace went off and found a a spot uh, on the border between France and Spain, which was a little bit disputed. No one was sure who it belonged to. And so he went to some design consultants who made a flag for him. And he pitched his flag up on that land and said it was his. And he started going around the local communities, uh, advertising his kingdom, uh, asking people, do you want to join my kingdom? He gives out leaflets saying, I'm going to be a great king. Now, I don't know how many people actually uh, ended up becoming part of his kingdom. But I wonder, what would make you join his kingdom? Who would you give your allegiance to in all situations? Who would you be willing to obey? Now, I should warn you this morning that we're going to be going quite quickly. Uh, To use Andrew's illustration from last week, we're going to be going through these verses in something between a car and a helicopter. And if you know what that is, please do let me know, because I still can't work it out after a whole week of trying. But before we get down to our passage today, let's just have a quick recap of what we saw last week. Andrew took us through 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we saw Samuel, the judge of Israel, installing his sons as the new rulers. And it turned out that wasn't such a great decision. His sons weren't very godly men, uh, and Israel's leaders weren't very happy about it, so they complain. But their solution to this leadership issue in Israel isn't a great one either. They ask Samuel for a king. A king like all the other nations had, uh, one who would fight their battles for them, one who would deliver them from their enemies. This was a very wicked request. You see, Israel already had someone who fought their battles for them. Israel already had someone who delivered them from their enemies. God himself. Israel were God's people. Well, God, in his grace, uh, warns them through Samuel of the kind of reign that this new king that they so desperately want would actually bring. Uh, One who will take their possessions. uh, One who will take their servants. One who will eventually actually take their own freedom. Rather than God, who was loving and merciful, who gave and gave and gave and only did what was best for his people. But in spite of the warning, uh, the people are still insistent, no, we want this new king. So the Lord tells Samuel, okay, give them a king. And we were left last week on that sort of cliffhanger as to who this king of Israel was actually going to be. Well, come with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. I better find it as well. To meet this new king. So flick back to it if you, if you lost it. Well, we're no longer with Samuel or the whole of Israel for that matter, the focus has changed to a single family. A family, we're told, who are from the uh, the clan of Benjamin. Sorry, from the tribe of Benjamin, from the clan of Matri. And we'll take a closer look at that tribe of Benjamin a little bit later. But first of all, who are we actually being introduced to? Well, in verse 1, it's the father, Kish, who we're told is a man of standing. 
in the Hebrew, that meant he had a lot of power. He was mighty. He had a lot of wealth. And then following on from that, we meet Saul in verse 2, his son. Uh, Now, Saul, like his father, stands out as well. Uh, We're told he was an impressive young man without equal. But it's not because of what he owns or, or the authority that he has. We're told that he had a head taller than any other. In other words, he was physically pretty impressive. He stood out in a crowd. And then suddenly we're launched into this story uh, by the author uh, of what may seem at first like a series of lucky coincidences. Verse 3, read it with me. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So, some donkeys belonging to Saul's father have gone astray. Now, today, if your pet were to go missing, you probably wouldn't send a search party out after it. And you certainly wouldn't expect that search party to cover the whole of the Clang Valley, looking for your lost cat or dog or something like that. But back in Saul's day, these donkeys were a lot more than just pets. Uh, Kish would have lost out dearly had he not got them back. So he bans Saul, his son, and his servant together and sends them off on this little search to try and find these donkeys. Well, the search isn't going very well. Uh, They've been searching for about three days. They've covered about 70 square kilometers, a huge area, and they still can't find these donkeys. And Saul decides to pack it in. He's afraid that his father Kish is going to start worrying more about Saul than he is going to be worrying about the donkeys. But just just as they're about to turn around, Saul's servant speaks up. The servant just happens to know that there is a man of God in a nearby town, uh, one who is highly respected, one whose words always come true. If anyone knew where these donkeys would be, well, it would be this guy. Well, Saul is a bit hesitant. It it was a sad tradition in those days that some so-called prophets were no more than fortune tellers expecting money uh, for their messages. And Saul's pockets, or sacks, as we read in verse 7, are empty. Oh, but wait, it just so happens that the servant has exactly the right amount of money. They need to pay this man, this man of God. So Saul, who's no doubt a little bit perked up, he's been looking for donkeys, can't find them for three days, and now everything seems to be going to plan. Says, okay, great, let's go. And they make their way up to the town. Well, it just so happens that some girls are coming out of the town at exactly the same time that they're arriving. Uh, Not only that, but it just so happens that these girls know exactly where this man of God is that they're looking for. And this man of God, it just so happens, arrived that very same day. He was visiting the the town to offer sacrifices on behalf of the uh, people. And he's actually coming out of the town and going up to the high place just as Saul and his servant are arriving at the entrance. Isn't that so convenient? It seems Saul's luck has changed. He couldn't find some donkeys for three days straight. And now everything is going to plan. But is it luck? All these convenient events and timings, just pure coincidence? Read with me, verse 15, 16. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry 
has reached me. Well, so much for luck and pure coincidence. God is working through this seemingly insignificant search. He's bringing about his promises to give his people the king that is promised. A king like all the other nations have. God even told Samuel that this chosen king would be delivered to his doorstep. And he reaffirms this when Saul appears in Samuel's sight. Verse 17. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So, this Saul was the one who would govern God's people. Uh, The king has been found. The donkeys are still missing, but the king's been found. Or so he thinks. Saul was the one who would govern Israel. Uh, But notice it doesn't say, uh, this is the man who's going to govern the Israelites independent of anybody else. Uh, God doesn't say, the Israelites are now going to be Saul's people, and I'm just going to go off somewhere and leave them alone. They are still very much God's people. And his rule is going to come through Saul, his chosen king. Now, of course, at the time, Saul's none the wiser. He doesn't know any of this. So he asks Samuel in verse 18, "Uh, can you tell me where the seer's house is? Seer being another name for a prophet in that day. I doubt Saul was prepared for the reply that Samuel gave him. Samuel responds, oh, it's me. Uh, I'm the seer. Uh, you are to eat with the high, uh, in the high place with me today. Uh, I have a message for you. Oh, and those donkeys that you've been looking for for three days straight, don't worry, they've been found. Well, Saul would probably have been a little bit astounded that Samuel already knew all of that. He'd just asked him where the seer's house was, nothing else. But it's Samuel's final statement that really gets to Saul. Verse 20. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your father's family? Saul is caught off guard. He reacts defensively. Verse 21. But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing of me? Well, Saul had a very good reason to show such concern at what Samuel had said. Uh, During the period of Judges, which is just before 1 Samuel, the Benjamites were depicted as spiritually disobedient and at times just quite irrational. The tribe was nearly decimated in Judges 20 for committing a heinous crime. They were nearly decimated by the rest of Israel. Saul belonged to the lowest spiritual clan of the most sin-stained tribe in the whole of Israel, in all of God's people. And yet God was going, to see, was going to use Saul, a Benjamite from the worst clan, to govern his people. I wonder if you've ever said to yourself, oh, God could never save him. God could never use her. Oh, God could never, ever be interested in me. Friends, we should never think that. Here we have the eternal creator and deliverer using the most unlikely of instruments in human eyes to govern his people. A man from the last tribe of Israel anyone would consider. God can save anyone. God can use anyone. And he doesn't view people by our own false preconceptions. So let's be careful how we view both ourselves and others. We don't underestimate God's power to save them or use them. Well, 
Samuel pays absolutely no attention to Saul's remark. Instead, he brings Saul and his servants straight to the eating place, and they dine with them that very evening. Uh, Saul is given a place of honor around the table. He's given special food that normally only a priest would be allowed to receive. It's all pointed to the fact that this is God's chosen king. This is the guy, even if Saul wants to believe it or not. Well, the following day, Saul is told to pack up. Uh, He's going to head home. But before he leaves, Samuel needs to give him this message, this message from God. So Saul's servant is told to head along, this message for Saul only. And uh, then 10 verse 1, read with me. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Well, this was Saul's secret anointing. It seems the time hadn't quite yet come for Israel to meet their king publicly. But Saul still receives the anointing that sets him apart from everybody else in Israel, symbolizing God's power coming to Saul to rule his people. Then Samuel gives Saul three prophetic signs to affirm that he is God's chosen king. I mean, Saul's probably in quite a bit of doubt at the moment. I'm not this king. What are you talking about? But Samuel's going to prove it to him. So what are these signs? Well, the first sign in verse 2, and we're going to be going through this quite quickly, is that he's going to bump into a couple of men who will inform him of the don- that the donkeys have actually been found. Uh, they're also going to tell him of his father's concern for him. I mean, where's he been all this time? He's given the exact place where all of this is going to happen. And this sign is going to confirm what Samuel said. The donkeys have been found and your father's worried about you. Well, on from there, verse 3, he's going to meet three more men uh, going up to worship God at Bethel. He's told the items that they're going to be carrying and that he's going to receive two loaves of bread from one of the men. Again, the place is given, the great tree of Tabor. Now, now these items that the, uh, the men are carrying are sacrificial offerings. They're consecrated. Only a priest would normally be allowed to receive them. But by Saul receiving the bread, he's affirming to himself that he is God's chosen king. Well, the third and final sign in verse 5 will occur when Saul approaches Gibeah. Uh, There will be a procession of prophets on their way down from the high place. And at this point, the final consummation of Saul's anointing is going to occur. uh, Verse 6 of chapter 10. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Well, there will be no doubt in Saul's mind, after all of this has happened, if it's going to happen, That he is the one. He is God's chosen king to rule his people. But God will be the one who gives him the power to do it. He's not going to be alone, is he, in his reign? Well, that's the signs. But before Saul actually leaves Samuel, Samuel has one last thing for him. You see, God is going to teach Saul how to behave as his king over his people through his prophet. The final thing that Samuel gives Saul is a command. Verse 8, chapter 10. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Samuel doesn't say, it's not too much trouble. Uh, I know you're the big king and everything now, but could I possibly just pop down in seven days and if you could just wait a little bit, uh, then I can... Offer the sacrifice offerings. 
He says, you must wait seven days. God was going to teach the king of his people how he is to behave in the same way he taught all of his people through his prophet, through Samuel. Well, so now Saul turns away from Samuel, and as he does so, we're told God changed his heart, which pretty much means he overturned it. In other words, he took away a lot of the doubt in Saul's mind and heart about whether he really was king. He's a changed man because God is now at work in him. Well, just as Samuel said, the signs all come true that very day, uh, though they were only given, though we were only given a detailed description of one of them in verse 10. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Well, Samuel's words have come true, and yet those people who knew Saul from beforehand disapproved when he starts prophesying. Uh, they felt Saul's behavior was completely inappropriate. Uh, the phrase, who is their father, in verse 12, uh, was an insult reserved for illegitimate prophets at Saul's time. Saul pays no attention. He heads up to the high place, possibly to offer the bread that he had received. And then he returns home to his uncle. And it seems his uncle wants some answers, uh, such as, where have you been? Oh, and what did Samuel say to you? Well, there are probably rumours flying around about now about how Samuel had honoured Saul so much, how he had given him a special place around the table and all that. Um, Saul wasn't that special a guy. And this was all at a time when Israel was expecting a king, but they didn't know who it was yet. But verse 16, Saul did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Saul understood that there was a need for secrecy about his anointing, just as Samuel had shown earlier, sending his servant on before him. Israel was still not ready to receive their king. Well, Samuel doesn't keep them waiting too long. In verse 17, he summons all the people of Israel to Mizpah. This was the same place where Samuel had interceded for the whole of Israel that they might be delivered from the Philistines back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, the place where God had saved his people from one of their greatest enemies. And now they were back. Not to recognize God as their king and deliverer. Uh, no, they were here to receive a new king. Uh, the one that would fight their battles for them. The one that would deliver them. A king like all the other nations had. Well, Samuel is not going to let them forget that this new king is the embodiment of their rebellion of God that easily. So he rebukes them. Read with me, verses 18 and 19, chapter 10. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Well, it certainly wasn't the nicest of coronation speeches, but it was a very honest one. So Israel present themselves. And lots are drawn, of course. The uh, tribe of Benjamin is brought forward and followed by Benjamin, Matri's tribe, uh, clan is brought forward. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, is chosen. There's a problem. Saul, son of Kish, isn't around. He's not present. 
So the people ask themselves, has something gone wrong? Has the Lord got it wrong? Well, they ask him in verse 22, has, has the man come here yet? Has he arrived? And the Lord said, yes. He has hidden himself amongst the baggage. Here was Israel's new leader, uh, the king who would fight their battles for them, uh, deliver them from their enemies. He's hiding in the baggage. It's not a great start, really. And though it was clear, Saul didn't want to be, uh, didn't want to be king, the decision's out of his hands. Uh, they've tracked him down. They've now pulled him out of the baggage. And in response to his incredible physique, they all acknowledge him with that time-old phrase, long live the king. But God won't allow Israel to push him out of the picture. This new king is not his replacement. Far from it. The king, Saul, was to be governed by the same covenant that God made with his people. So if Israel's hope had been to distance God's law from their politics, well, they were going to be really disappointed. We see in verses, verse 25, the rights and duties of the kingship were written down and laid before the Lord. Uh, the covenant that God had made with his people hadn't become void. Rather, now it covered the monarchy as well. Israel was still very much God's people. And the only difference was that they were now under God's chosen king. And he himself was very much under God. So Samuel dismisses them. You can go back to your homes now. And it seems Saul has already got a bit of a following. Uh, valiant men whose hearts have been changed, touched by God, accompanied him home. Well, these men would have been happy for Saul to leave them. Uh, they probably would have fought to enforce his right to do so. But not everyone has taken to Saul's new position with such elation. There were some troublemakers, we're told in verse 27, who sneered, saying, how can this guy really save us? Well, they obviously weren't afraid to let Saul know how they felt. They didn't even bring him the customary tribute. It was very rude. But Saul kept silent. Uh, this was Saul's first experience of opposition since being made king publicly. Yet he does nothing. He still hasn't proved himself as a leader, able to fight opposition, opposition on behalf of his people. Uh, one of the main reasons Israel wanted this king to fight their battles for them. Well, fortunately for Saul, it doesn't take very long for an opportunity to present itself. An opportunity to see God's king in action. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you, only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Let's see, the men in Jabesh are in a spot of trouble. Uh, they are totally surrounded by some merciless enemies led by Nahash, the Ammonite. And the men in Jabesh are so helpless that they are about to surrender. They're about to give in. They're about to accept terms. But these terms were certainly not that nice. And they really weren't that ordinary. The terms were, okay, you'll be spared, but your right eyes won't. It was an inhuman and cruel term. Uh, one that would have left them helpless in future military engagements. Uh, let me show you. Let's take a little break, a bit of a practical demonstration. I'd like everybody to put out their right arm in front of them. Could you all just put, try not to hit the person in front of you. 
And with your index finger, just point up at the ceiling like that. And I'd like you to take your other arm, your other index finger, and then try and touch the tip of the index finger of the arm you're pointing out like that. It's not very hard, is it? That's fairly easy. Okay, now I'd like you to put your, that arm down again. Keep this one out. And now close your left eye like that. Just close your left eye. And now I'd like you to do the same thing again. Oh, it's not that easy, is it? Now, that little exercise is hard. I imagine what it would be like to take aim in battle, where it really counts. You wouldn't stand a chance. And so confident is Nahash that he's going to win, uh, that he even allows messengers to be sent throughout the whole of Israel for seven days, seeking aid for the men. Well, Nahash probably thought help is really unlikely. These messengers have got seven days to scout the entire of Israel. That's a huge piece of land to cover. Well, the messengers are sent out, and eventually uh, they reach Saul's hometown, Gibeah. And they tell the people there the distress, the news of the men of Jabesh in such trouble. And all of them start crying. That's fair enough, really. And just at this point, uh, King Saul is arriving back from the fields. He's still got on with his other job. And he asks, what's going on? It's probably not every day that he sees his entire town in tears. And when he hears the news, something incredible happens. 11 verse 6. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messenger throughout, uh, throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Well, everyone certainly gets the message. They are filled with terror by God himself for the sake of their oxen. They all turn out just as if they were just one person. And Saul's opportunity to, present, uh, to uh, prove himself as Israel's leader in battle has arrived. But God is the one who will empower him to do it. And Saul recognizes God's place in all of this. See how Saul says in verse 7, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who doesn't follow Saul and Samuel. Samuel is God's chosen means for communication with his people. And Saul rightly recognizes that as the people should follow him, what well, they should follow Samuel too. So the men are assembled, and the messengers are told, you can go back to Jabesh. And once the men at Jabesh have received the news of their deliverance, they pass on this message to their captors. Verse 10. Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever seems good to you. Well, no doubt they were chuckling under their breaths at the same time. So the next day, Saul delivers on his promise. He splits the men into three groups. It's a time-proven strategy. And at about dawn, when the Ammonite camp will least expect it, they raid them. It's not so much of a battle as it is a massacre, really. And they slaughter the Ammonites till noon. Any Ammonite who escaped was left on his own. He didn't even have a companion with him. So the men of Jabesh have been rescued. But who's rescued them? In verse 12, we see that Israel... Believe it to be Saul, their new king. They want the heads of those troublemakers who said he wasn't fit to lead. But Saul refuses. He answers our question, verse, seven, verse 13. But Saul said, no one shall be put to death today. For this day, the Lord rescued Israel. Yes, Saul had promised deliverance and led Israel into battle. But it was the Lord who, through Saul, delivered the men of Jabesh. It was his spirit that empowered him to do it. Uh, no one will be put to death 
on the day that the Lord has delivered his people, even if they had questioned the ability of his chosen king. So instead, Samuel tells everyone to go to Gilgal to reaffirm the kingship. At Mizpah, Saul had been chosen and proclaimed king, but he wasn't fully supported. Now God has proven his king in battle. So now all the people will establish him. And again, we clearly see that this new rule, this new king, will maintain God's place with Israel. Verse 15. So all the people went up to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Israel are still very much God's people under his rule, even though Saul is king over them. We're told they hold a great celebration. The people are happy to have such a king, and Saul now is happy to be such a king. Well, so far we've seen Saul's a bit shy, as a bit of a cow before. But he has still honored the Lord in his actions when he was empowered. He still hasn't broken the Lord's commands. Will it remain this way? Well, time will tell, or come back next week. But how does this story of Saul's rise to power apply to you and me as God's people today? Uh, Well, this certainly wasn't the last time God had used his chosen king to deliver his people. This story of deliverance points forward to a far greater deliverance for God's people. You see, as terrible an enemy the Ammonites were, no doubt were against the men of Jabesh, every single one of us actually face a far greater threat even greater than losing an eye. It's God's wrath because of our own rebellion against him that brings death and judgment. You see, Israel weren't alone in abandoning God and choosing to put a new king over him. We've all done that as well. And the king that we've chosen to rule our lives instead of God, well, it's us. And God is just. He's not going to let that continue forever. He's not going to let us mock his power and his glory, and his rightful place as ruler, as creator. But he is gracious and merciful too. We've certainly seen that graciousness in our passage today. God delivered the men of Jabesh from their enemy through Saul. He was willing to save his people through a king that embodied his people's rebellion of him, against him, his people's rejection of him. But God has brought about an even greater salvation through another king. One who, unlike Saul, was the fulfillment of all God's plans for his people. Uh, The one who lived the perfect life that we couldn't. The life acceptable to God. And died the death that we deserved. He took the punishment for our rebellion against him. He paid the price for our treason. That's what happened on the cross. That's what Andrew was explaining earlier. God's chosen king, Jesus, his own son, saved us through his blood. We've been delivered from our greatest enemy through Jesus' sacrifice of himself. But let's not forget, Jesus is not only saviour, he is now king of humanity too. God, in response to Jesus' sacrifice, raised him to the highest place. He is in total authority over all things. Do you recognize Jesus as your king? Have you accepted him as the king of your life? 
Are you paying him the tribute that he is Jew? Or are you like the troublemakers that we saw earlier? Who rejected God's king? Who gave him no tribute? Who mocked him? Who said they couldn't lead? Who didn't trust his worthiness? Let me put it another way. Who gave God no tribute? Who didn't think that God's king could lead? Who didn't think that God knew what he was doing when he chose his king? On that day of Saul's victory, the troublemakers, they were spared. On the last day, those who reject God's king, Jesus, won't be. To refuse God's king is to refuse God. And to refuse God brings his judgment. Now it may be that we have accepted Jesus as our saviour and our king. That is great. But are we continuing to live with him as our king? Are we submitting to him? Are we bringing him the tribute he deserves? Living a life of obedience and thankfulness to him? Honouring him in our decisions? Are we following him in our ways? Are we obeying his commands? Let's be living with Jesus as king of our lives this week. And let's pray now that God, by his grace, would help us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your incredible mercy and faithfulness, you delivered your people, Israel, from their enemies, in spite of their rebellion against you. And thank you for the rescue that you offer us in your own Son, that we too might be saved from our greatest enemy, the consequence of our rebellion, that we might become your people. Uh, Please help us to be witnesses to that fact that Jesus is king of all things in our lives this week. For your glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen.